Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 66, Dynamic Prop Balancing with Dynavibe. So as builders and pilots of our own aircraft, we're always looking for ways to improve performance and reliability of our engines and our aircraft. And ensuring your aircraft's prop runs smooth and vibration-free is a real simple way to do both. So we're going to cover the methodology and the process of dynamically balancing your propeller and help you get the smoothest engine around. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic 1374. Joining me once again are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot. He's a former CFI and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. It's an average work day, but doing well. Well, you know, that day job thing, you know, it can really get in the way. Uh, I know. I keep I keep kind of dreaming of the day when I'll be uh, somewhat retired like my buddy Jeff is. <laughs> retired slash unemployed. Well, yeah. Depends on how you look at it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, good. Um, uh, you guys are probably getting that same cold air we're getting. It's uh, pretty darn frigid right now. Yeah, I'll say temperatures hovering right around freezing. A little bit of wind makes the wind chill a little bit more aggravating. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you'll get a warm up here over the weekend. Hoping so. Alrighty, and John Gillis. John is an experienced Sonics builder. He's a glider pilot and a world traveler. And uh, we'll just let him fill you in on all his adventures. Uh, next time we're sitting around at SOS Brothers. So, and recently, John adds his new model YXB conversion to the stable. So, John, how is the Super B? Oh, the Super B, the uh, squawk list, every time I fly it, is uh, going down. Um, I took it out last weekend and actually uh, with a nice balanced prop. It was very smooth. And the uh, I actually t- pulled the trigger and let the autopilot take over. And I was amazed. Um, it it flew the plane really well, quite well. No snap roll or anything? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't do the Gary Motley, uh, you know, complete deviation from course like we saw come back from Oshkosh. So <laughs> I was a little worried about it, and I had my hand on the switch to flip it off. But, uh, no, it took it took control of the plane, and uh, it flew better than I could. Well, well, no, you guys were happened to be over Iowa flying right above some crop circles. And so, you know, those those UFO sightings, electromagnetic <laughs> interference, plays havoc with the autopilot. It does. It was the gravity fields of those stupid windmills that just scare <laughs> the hell out of me. Well, good. I'm glad the, the Super B is going well. And um, you're going to have to uh, share your, your configuration settings on your autopilot if you did anything special or if, you, if it just worked out of the box. I'd be interested to see it, that. That's the amazing thing is it worked right out of the box. And so I'm really kind of impressed. I'm not normally impressed with MGL, but their autopilot really works well. All right. Well, good. We want to see some uh, high-speed flyby videos, you know, get one of your air park neighbors to go out there and film you on the runway. I'll do that. (laughs) Good. All right. Well, our guest this episode is Steve Sennett of RPX Technologies. Those are the makers of the Dynavibe balancing tools. So RPX is based in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and they have delivered thousands of units to both general aviation customers, uh, including a bunch of home builders, and then other sources like commercial aviation and the military. So Steve, thanks for coming on and spending a few minutes to talk about Dynavibe. Oh, thanks for having me. So, you know, before we delve into all the details, can you just give us a, a 30-second commercial for what and why dynamic prop balancing is even a thing? And then we'll get into the whole details. 
Well, the reason we want to dynamically balance a propeller is because it is out of balance. It's something that a lot of pilots, particularly when they're flying the same airplane all the time, don't really realize that the prop is out of balance and it, it could get worse over time and they just get used to it. Um, so balancing the prop is a really economical, easy thing you can do to reduce overall vibration in the aircraft. So what we're doing by dynamically balancing the prop is we're balancing the prop while it's installed on the airplane, as opposed to static balancing, which is typically done by the manufacturer when in the build process of the prop or a prop shop when they're doing an overhaul, they statically balance the prop while it's off the airplane. We're dynamically balancing the prop while it's on the airplane. So um, again, it's, it's probably the easiest, most economical thing you can do to reduce vibration. And, and I try to use an analogy that I think a lot of people can relate to if um, you've got a ceiling fan in your house that's out of balance. One, it can be really annoying because it's noisy and it's bouncing around all over the place, but it can also do a lot of damage too. Um, and certainly it can do a lot of damage to an airplane and the components of the airplane, but the most obvious effect for uh, a crew member or a pilot by dynamically balancing the prop is you're going to have a much smoother ride. It's going to be a lot quieter and it's overall, it's much more efficient. Whereas an out-of-balance prop with this mass imbalance it's spinning around is just, um, it's inefficient. So we're dynamically balancing the prop while it is on the aircraft. Okay. All right. Well, that's a kind of a good overview to kind of tee things up. So before we get into the details, um, set the stage for us. Tell us, uh, tell us how you came to be involved with Dynavibe and the prop balancing business. Um, well, I've been involved with this within aviation. I've been working in aviation for about 23 years, and I've been working in balancing and vibration analysis for 23 years. So um, I, of that 23 years, a large part of that time, I was really fortunate in that I was a, a field tech rep. And what that afforded me to do was basically work with customers in the field with their aircraft, like their operations all the time. So I got a lot of exposure to all kinds of different operations. Like you said before, we sell to customers who are home builders up to people who are um, operating, you know, part, part 121 airlines, military people. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with the Harrier program in the Marine Corps, a lot of helicopter operators. So I got a lot of real world experience and, uh, you know, it was a lot of fun too. Um, so. Um, but prior to that, I actually worked in the industrial chemical business. And, uh, you know, how I got into this was um, I, uh, I actually answered an ad in the newspaper. And this is not something that uh, there's a lot of companies out there making uh, these products. There's just a, a handful of companies. So they were um, looking for someone who had some aviation experience but was willing to learn and was trainable. And just over the years, um, I'm certainly by no means an, an expert, but I've gotten a lot of exposure to um, different operations. And so I kind of feel like I've got a pretty good handle on real world experiences. So that's kind of how I got into it. Okay. And um, you joined the company um, sometime after they were founded. So how long has Dynavibe been around? Dynavibe has been around, um, I want to say, for about 13 years. Um, and I've been with the company coming up on i think seven years okay hmm. okay well excellent okay so just thinking back of your um your opening remarks um i want to kind of peel this back and make sure everybody kind of understands a piece at a time on uh, on the process and kind of the thought 
that goes into you know how we're going to balance these props. So let's let's start with the first thing. Um, you know, what is a dynamic prop balance, and then how is that different from a quote unquote regular prop balance or a static balance? So let's let's dig into that, and then let's go into you know some of the benefits. Okay. Well, again, a static balance is going to be done by the prop shop or the manufacturer um, when they're overhauling the prop or they are um, manufacturing the prop. And again, it's done off of the aircraft, whereas dynamic balancing is done on the aircraft. So a, a lot of people have the perception, uh, not so much anymore, because I think we've done a, uh, in this industry, we've done a fairly good job of, of educating people to the benefits of this. But a lot of people think, um, well, my prop has been statically balanced, so there's no need for me to dynamically balance it. Whereas the best time to dynamically balance is after it's been statically balanced and you've installed it on the airplane. Um, so by uh, don't want to you know put the cart in front of the horse here, but when we're dynamic balancing it, we're balancing the prop and as an assembly with all the components with it while the prop's running. And we typically do it at cruise RPM. And in order to do that, to facilitate balancing, we need a piece of balancing equipment that'll do this. Um, and typically there's a couple sensors you mount up on, the engine, and then you've got a control unit or a computer unit that's going to collect data from the prop, and it's going to give you um, an indication of how far the prop's out of balance, where the imbalance is occurring on the prop, and then depending on what model of balancer you get and how automated it is, um, it'll, it will tell you how much weight to add on the prop, where to add that weight in order to reduce the mass imbalance. So what we're doing when we're is we're correcting for a mass imbalance or, or a heavy spot on the prop. And that's something we can correct for. If there's an aerodynamic imbalance, say the blades are out of track, then that can cause us a different problem and it may cause some difficulty in dynamically balancing the prop. But um, again, static balancing is something you would want to have done obviously prior to installing the prop on the airplane. At that point, you want a dynamic balancing. So I, I kind of look at it this way. A static balance will get the prop vibration to a level where it is, you're capable of dynamic balancing it. So um, you can't have a prop when you're going out to dynamic balance that is so far out of balance that you are unable to dynamically balance. And at that point, what you'd want to do is you'd want to remove the prop, send it back to the prop shop, and have them re-static balance the prop. Steve, uh, for an analogy, this would be like taking your uh, SUV tire and putting it on a bubble level to balance it, that's the static. So you're, you're kind of balancing it without it spinning just to figure out which side is heavier than the other. And once you get that done, then you put it on the spin balancer, which is what the tire shops do, and they dynamically balance that wheel when they spin it, right? Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. And one of the things I always kind of think of is – you know, the prop, just if you just hold the prop on your arms, all you have is a prop. It's a single piece probably, and, and that's it, the blades and the hub and all that. But when you bolt it on the airplane, now you have a crush plate, you have bolts and washers and nuts, you have a spinner perhaps, or at least on the Sonics, you have the crush plate spinner. You have um, any imbalances that carry over from the crankshaft and the pistons and connecting rods. All that stuff can play into how the prop actually runs once installed in the airplane. That's correct. And people would be surprised, but... Um it does not take much deviation from that entire assembly for it to throw it out of balance. So even if a prop is, you know, removed for, from the airplane for whatever reason and then reinstalled, even if you really didn't do anything to it, just torquing it back differently can throw the, the out of balance out, this, the balance out. Um, so it really doesn't take much. Um, but 
the nice part about it, going back to what I said previously, this is a very easy process to do. Um, it's, it's very effective and it's not, you guys have done it. It's not complicated at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go through a typical balancing operation. Um, walk us through just, you know, from installing the sensors and kind of where you would put them and then running the engine and collecting the data. And then what do you do about it? Just walk us through that. Okay. Well, the first thing you'd want to do, and I, I tell people this because the typical person who owns a, a balancing unit, a prop balancing unit, is not using it every single day. Um, and in many cases, like if it's a service center, um, they may use it more frequently, but they still may go months without using it. And then a customer shows up and they're going out to balance the props. So the first thing you'd want to do is, on a certified aircraft, is make sure the balancing instrument, the prop balancer, is in calibration if it's required to be calibrated. Um, and that's just going to ensure its accuracy. Um, another thing you might want to check, too, is make sure, because nowadays um, there's still some old analog balancing tools out there where people are using strobexes to balance the props. But with the digital equipment, you would also want to make sure that that unit has the latest firmware that whoever you bought it from, like from us, there haven't, hasn't been a firmware upgrade or anything like that. So you want to make sure everything's up to date and it's being calibrated. At that point, um, going out to the airplane, um, you'd want to take a look at the airplane and see if it's been dynamically balanced in the past. And how you could determine this is, again, it's just going to vary a little bit from airplane to airplane, but you'd want to see if there was any counterweights that were added to the airplane. And, you, and I'll just use an example of adding weight to the spinner backing plate. If you see washers uh, on the backing plate of an airplane, it's probably been dynamically balanced. So you want to make a determination if it's already been done before, before you go out and balance the prop. Um, if it already has been dynamically balanced and there's counterweight on the prop, you'd want to make a note of where that weight's located. You'd want to actually take that weight off and you would want to weigh it so you know how much weight's on there because when we go out to dynamically balance the prop, if there's already counterweight on it and we're going to balance the prop anyways, you'd want to remove any previous weight um, so you're just not stacking weight on top of weight that's already on there. And what you ideally what you want to have is you want to have no vibration due to the prop being out of balance, but you also want to have the least amount of counterweight on the prop as you can as you can get away with. So at that point, um, you want to check the overall condition of the prop assembly, make sure there's no cracks and stuff on the backing plate, and just make sure everything's mechanically sound. At that point, um, and there are other manufacturers, a few other manufacturers that make prop balancing equipment, but the installation of the equipment um, is pretty typical for the different companies that manufacture this equipment. Um, the means to um, for collecting the data is about the same. The way the balancer specifically works is, is what's going to be a little bit different. But in order to balance the prop, we need to get collect data while we're running the airplane. So, again, we are doing this while the airplane is running. So what we do is we install two sensors out on the engine. One is an accelerometer, and that's going to measure uh, the vibration. Um, it's going to measure in velocity, and it's going to report that uh, vibration in an engineering unit, which is inches per second. So it's very – if you're out – talking to people about balancing props and they said my prop was balanced down to 0.1 ips they're referring to inches per second so the vibration sensor or the accelerometer is going to measure the severity of the vibration and again depending on what kind of balancing unit you're using um, we have a unit called a gx3 that will is a fully automated unit for balancing but it will also do vibration spectrum analysis so it'll show you the vibration that's occurring through 
a, a very broad frequency range and we can just install an accelerometer up on the engine or in the cockpit or wherever you want to and you can collect vibe data all day long but if we're going to go out and balance the prop what we need is some sort of what we call a phase reference or an angular reference and that's going to be where the vibration is occurring on that prop and how we achieve this is by using what we call a photo tack and the photo tack is a little laser light that mounts up typically it mounts up by the accelerometer and i'll get into specifically where you'd want to mount this in a second but what that's going to do is it's going to hit a piece of reflective tape that you're going to place on one of the prop blades and every time that that tape goes by it's going to interact with the photo tack and it's going to send a signal back to the balancing unit and the accelerometer is sending a signal back at the same time. So with those two sensors installed, what you're able to achieve is to determine not only how bad the vibration is, but at what angle that's occurring or where the heavy spot is on the prop. And it may not always fall on um, uh, one of the prop blades. So by installing that equipment, um, that's essentially all you need. And again, it runs everything back to a computer unit. Um, the the old analog equipment that's out there, the older balancers, it used to require, you know, someone being in the aircraft, running the aircraft, and then someone standing out in front of the airplane with a strobex, firing the strobex back at the prop to angrily figure out where it's out of balance. With the modern technology, like with our equipment, our Dynavibe Classic and our Dynavibe GX3, this is a one-person operation. So what you would typically do is install the accelerometer, which is the vibe sensor, as close to the prop as you can possibly get it. And where it's typically installed, continental, continental Lycoming stuff, is on far forward case bolt. And we've got mounts that we sell with our equipment that will enable you to um, utilize the case bolts without having to remove the nut from the, the case bolt itself. So you want the accelerometer certainly as close to the assembly you're trying to balance as possible. So if you're standing in front of the airplane looking back at it, typically that accelerometer is going to be pointed straight up and down at, at the 12 o'clock position. The photo tack, which is the little light that hits the reflective tape, um, in many cases it can be mounted right next to the accelerometer. And you, again, we have brackets to mount those. And you want the, acceler the photo tack to be um, at least six inches away from the reflective tape. And a, a, an ideal range would be, you know, 12 to 18 inches away to hit uh, the piece of reflective tape for it to adequately pick it up. And once you install those two sensors, you're going to route the, the associated cabling back to the cockpit if you're doing this by yourself. And you want to make sure that all the cabling safely secured. You do not want to run, particularly with accelerometer, the cable over any plug wires or anything that's got an electric impulse that could influence the readings on the accelerometer. But you can run everything back to the cockpit plug it into the balance unit, and then, again, we have to run the airplane to do this. We, we don't have to go fly it, but we do have to run it on the ground. And once we get everything set up, and depending on what balancer unit you're using, if you're using our, our GX3, which is our more automated unit, it's going to ask you some setup information, which um, will include stuff like who owns the airplane, what's the registration number of the airplane. If it's a twin-engine airplane, are you doing the left side or the right side? And it'll ask you the engine horsepower. And then it'll ask you where are the sensors located? How many places do you have to add weight? Where are these locations located on the prop? And at that point, once you have that information set up in there, um, you would steer plane up, you know, wait, wait till everything's in the green. And then you typically want to run this at, at cruise RPM, where the airplane's operating the vast majority of the time. And once you get to a stable 
RPM at a cruise power setting, you want to verify that you've got a good prop tack on the balancing unit because, again, with the photo tack, you are actually reading the prop uh, RPM. And another thing you can do with the equipment is just kind of a side note. You can check your tack in the airplane against the, the, the RPM you're getting off the photo tack. And once everything's stable and you're getting good readings, you're just going to – it's a simple one push of a button operation. You're going to press a button and – our balancing equipment has an averaging feature in it where it kind of filters out any anomalies or electrical noise that might uh, you encounter you might encounter. And typically at cruise RPM, it takes about seven to eight seconds to get a reading that you can work with in order to balance the prop. At that point, once you got the reading, you'd want to pull the power back on the airplane to idle and then go through normal shutdown procedures. And then with the balancing unit, you um, assuming you got good a good reading. Um, you're going to have the data you need in order to go out and install counterweight on the airplane in order to adjust for that mass imbalance. So in doing this, and again, it depends on the type of which piece of equipment you're using, um, with our, our most automated piece of equipment, the GX3, it's not unheard of to be able to balance in one run. So um, I know a lot of home builders have our Dynavibe Classic, which is not quite as automated, but, and I don't want to get fixated on the GX3, but the GX3, once you get that data, will actually come back and go, okay, your vibration, and this is just an example, is 0.5 ips, and it's at, you know, 170 degrees. Based on that, the software will just do the vector math, and it will tell you, based on that, you need to add X amount of weight to this location. And what you want to do is get your counterweight, which is typically just A in hardware, and you would go out and add that weight to the airplane and you would program what you actually entered on the airplane into the software, into the balancing unit and go run the airplane again. In the vast majority of cases, you're going to make an improvement on the very first run. After you've run the airplane the second time, you're going to, and you're going to do it exactly the same way you did it the first time. And something that's critical is you want to do it at the same RPM every time you're going to get another reading. It's going to say, okay, now the vibration's at 0.25 ips, and it's at this phase angle. Well, at this point with our GX3 unit, because you've actually entered into the software the amount of weight you actually put on the airplane, it's going to start getting really accurate because now it knows what we call the influence of the propeller. And the influence is simply how much weight does it take to balance this thing? Um, and I'll back up here just a little bit. On our very first run, um, the, the software is going to know where to add the weight, but it won't necessarily know how much weight to add because it's never balanced this prop before. So what we use is we use an engine horsepower setting. And what that does when you're putting your setup information in the box, it'll ask you, what's the engine horsepower? And you're going to say it's 200. And after your first run, what it simply does is it takes the engine horsepower and multiplies it by the amount of ips, and it gives you, um, the amount of weight you need to add to the prop. And it's actually pretty accurate. But again, after you've actually added weight and you're able to tell the software what you did on subsequent runs, assuming you're doing everything correct and what you're actually putting on the airplane is actually what you're programming in the software, it's going to get more and more accurate as you go. So it could take you know three or four runs. Um, it could take one run. And I, I balance props many times where I get it done in one run. And RGX3 has really, really accurate software. It still kind of amazes me how accurate it is. But 
one thing I tell people in the process of doing this, and I, I do our product support as well as other things with the company, is that you shouldn't be out here running the airplane multiple, multiple times and getting nowhere. Um, your angle is just all over the place. The yips is getting better, then it's getting worse. You should know very quickly within one or two runs if the prop is going to be able to be dynamically balanced. And if you're having issues where you're not getting the results you anticipate, there's a good chance that you've done something wrong. You've used the balancing equipment wrong, or there's a chance that, that mechanically something's wrong with the airplane that's causing you to have these issues. But um, it's it's a pretty simple process. And uh, like I said, one to four runs and you're done. Anything, in my opinion, above and beyond that, you need to start looking back at what you're doing, the process of how you're doing it, and see if you've made any mistakes. And and again, uh, this equipment's really easy to use. It's not complicated by any means, but this is a type of equipment where typically it's not something that somebody's using every single day. So we've tried engineering to it simplicity. So it's just, you can pick it up. I haven't used this thing in three months, but you can, you know, fall right back into how it works. So now Steve on the classic model, it's a little more simplistic. It just tells you the, the ips and the, the direction that you either need to add or subtract weight, depending on how you have it set up. If, um, if you're using the classic and you get that, it's pretty easy to say, okay, say it's, um, 0.5 at zero degrees. So you kind of just figure out, okay, that's right on my, let's say it's probably right on one of the blades and I need to add weight there. Um, is it the same type of process with the, with the classic where you just throw a little weight on and then run it and see how it goes? Or is there another technique to kind of sneak up on it? The term sneaking up on it is, uh, I think it's, it's a good phrase to use on this and I'll go into that in a second. But the, the classic is a little bit different. It's a little less automated, but it's 100% fully digital. So it's very accurate. And with the classic, you can balance down to 0.00 ips. Um, but how the classic works is the installation of the sensors is exactly the same, and it's using the exact same sensors. How you run the airplane is exactly the same. It's the data you're going to get from the balancer, the classic, that's um, and how it interprets that that's a little bit different in how you go about things. So how the classic works is the information you're going to get from it is you're going to get the prop RPM, you're going to get the ips, and you're going to get the angle. So, you again, run the airplane just like you did with the other unit at cruise RPM. It's going to take you about eight seconds to take the reading. You do not have to sit out here for minutes on the ground running the airplane at cruise power setting. It's going to take about eight seconds. Once you get the data from the box, shut the airplane down. And what you want to do at that point is you want to index the reflective tape that you put on one of the prop blades back to where it's in line with the photo tack, that little light we talked about before. Once everything's back indexed the way the, the reflective tapes in front of the photo tack, the, um, you're going to want to determine where the heavy spot is on the prop. And when the Dynavibe Classic gives you an angle reference, once you find that angle on the prop, that's indicating where the prop is heavy. So, this is something that is it's pretty simple, but it's it's a little confusing to people sometimes until you've done it a couple of times. Um, we reference everything kind of by standing in front of the airplane, looking back at it to whereas, you know, we're mostly used to in aviation to sitting in the airplane, looking back out at the prop. But if you were to get a rating at 0.5 ips and let's say it's at, at 90 degrees, um, what you would do again is index the reflective tape back in front of the little photo light and you would count 
from the accelerometer, the vibe sensor, which is your zero degree point, not the photo tack, um, you would count in the direction the prop's rotating until you got to the angle on the prop that's indicated on the Dynavibe Classic. So if it's 90 degrees on a prop that's rotating counterclockwise and you're standing in front of the prop, you're actually going to be counting counterclockwise. So 90 degrees is going to be over at the nine o'clock position. This is an indication of where the prop is heavy. So what you'd want to do is you'd want to add your counterweight 180 degrees to the opposite side of that location. Now, if you're in a situation where you're like, and I, I'll, I do a lot of helicopters too, where you have a two-bladed rotor system and you got the same type of reading, you could, in many cases, go, well, I've already got weight where it says it's heavy, so why don't I remove weight? If you could remove weight, that would be ideal. But for balancing props, it's going to be very, very rare that you're ever going to be in a situation where you can remove weight. So again, you want to find out where that angle is. That's an indication of the heavy spot. And you want to add weight on the opposite side of that location, 180 degrees opposite. How much weight does it require? Well, the Dynavibe GX3 is going to tell you how, how much weight's required. And again, it's going to get more accurate as you go. Typically, it takes about 40 to 50 grams of of weight to reduce the vibration by 1.0 inch per second. Okay. And that's a fairly good number. There's a little more, I wouldn't say it's complicated. There's a calculation you can use. That's basically it's the engine horsepower divided by 10 plus 30. And then that value you'd multiply by your IPS level would get you how much weight you, the specific amount of weight you need to add. But with the classic, you'd want to do that calculation every single time. Um, or you could determine, hey, I, I, I thought I was supposed, to, I thought I needed to add 10 grams of weight, but actually I only needed to add five. Um, so you can do the math in your head again, where the GX3 will do it for you. So that's how the classic works. And going back to the sensor installation, this, this is something that confuses people sometimes. I wouldn't say all the time, but it's pretty critical where you mount the accelerometer. Um, you want to. Typically mounted on the case bolts if you can get it there at the 12 o'clock position. The photo tack, you have a little more flexibility where you can mount it. So even if you can't get it up by the accelerometer due to whatever reason, you know, you got something in the way, um, you can mount it on the side of the cowling. You can mount it on the bottom of the cowling. Um, as long as it's hitting the reflective tape, it's giving you a good steady tack signal. You've got flexibility of where you can mount the photo tack. Again, the accelerometer is a critical, the critical point. But... Um, regardless of where you mount the photo tack, once you shut the airplane down after collecting the data, you want to index the reflective tape, which is on one of the prop blades. And let me back up here. You, some people, depending on where they mount the photo tack, may mount the tape on or stick the tape on, one, on the backing plate. You can mount it on the backing plate too. But once you shut the airplane down, and if the photo tack, let's say, is on the side of the cowling, then the prop would be moved over to where the tape's um, in front of the photo tack you would still start counting from your zero degree point from where the accelerometer is. So that's the, the, the prop rotation and where you count, start beginning counting from your zero degree point is, is something people get confused now and then, but after they've done it one time, they're like, oh, I see how this works now. So it's a pretty easy process. And that manual calculation, you know, certainly it's not automated, but it's actually pretty accurate. And Steve, I guess that's, um, we're talking about mounts and all that. 
that's uh, an advantage to having your accelerometer and your photo tack, you know, right next to each other because that simplifies indexing the prop and counting degrees. And yeah, all that. It, it definitely does. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I've talked to people who have always thought that they count from where the photo tack is. And then I'll talk to them on the phone for whatever reason. I'm like, well, actually, you count from where the accelerometer is. But they've had great success in balancing props, but they've always had the photo tack and accelerometer mounted together right next to each other. So in that right. case, it really wouldn't matter. But if you're in a situation where you have to mount the photo tack in another location from the accelerometer, it is important to know that you want to, after you shut the airplane down, index the reflective tape in front of the photo tack and begin counting from the accelerometer. So that's that's critical. Well, guys, I, I think I've got some, I, I did this, I used your system and I used the classic system. Um, so I think maybe we can kind of start going over some of the problems and, and snafus that we counted. I think you, you've already covered most of them, Steve, but I think I have a couple <laughs> other ideas that might help some of our, our guests out as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's something that going back to the process of balancing, this is not something where you should be beating your head against the wall going, well, I've run this thing 10 times now and I just can't seem to get it in balance. Certainly there are, are reasons why that may be happening. But if it's not going to balance, um, you should know this fairly quickly. And what I normally see from a product support standpoint is that people are counting the wrong way. Um, they're not counting in the direction the prop's rotating. They're counting clockwise or they're counting. They're looking at the prop from the perspective of sitting in, in the pilot seat. And in some cases, they're counting from where the photo tack is and not the accelerometer. And that's, again, an issue if those two sensors are not co-located. Well, Jeff, can I kind of jump in here for a few minutes? Yeah, go ahead. All let's, right. Uh, let's cover some specific lessons learned. Yeah. So, well, uh, you know, most of us are not doing this in a windless environment. We usually have to pull our planes out of the hangars. Uh, I have some personal observation, but Steve, how much would you say that you need a, a pretty quiet and calm environment in which to be running this engine to get a, an accurate read? Yeah, you definitely don't want to be doing this when it's really windy outside. Um, and, you know, some people are... I. I can remember years ago being up in Montana doing some prop balancing, assisting some customers, and, you know, it was very windy. And the guys I was with said, it's always windy. So um, if that's the case, what you want to be um, aware of is kind of the gusting winds, where it's loading up the prop and then it's unloading the prop. Um, that's where it's going to cause you some problems. So when you are doing this, um, there's a value that people throw out there. You shouldn't do this in over um, 20 knot winds. You want to make sure it's not real gusty out. When the air, If the airplane is moving around on the ground because of wind, it's probably too windy to do this. But if there is a wind, even if it's a slight wind, you want to have the aircraft pointed into the wind. You don't want to have a quartering tailwind where it's going to load up the prop. And another thing that uh, can cause a problem, you don't want to and a lot of people do this, you don't want to pull the airplane out and run it right next to a hanger or some T hangers where you're going to have prop wash going off the hangers and going back into the prop where it's again, loading up the prop. When this is happening, you can actually, in many cases, see this happening when you're taking the reading, you're going to see, um, to me, it's more indicative when you see the IPS level kind of jumping around quite a bit. Um, the phase angle is going to move around too, but you know, you don't want to do this in, in very high wind and certainly when it's really gusty because that's that's not going to help you out for sure. Yeah, I, I noticed when I was doing mine, um, I thought the winds were fairly light, 
But of course, as you know, when you got the prop at high RPM and you're kind of standing on the brakes and hoping everything is not going to be moving on you, uh, you still get quite a bit of jostling of the aircraft itself. Um, I, I don't know. Tell me if this is right or not. I'll tell you what my final result was. But basically, when you push the button to average and you get the inches as well as the vector or the weight, I actually would try to do basically three averages and then do a mathematical average of those three averages. What would you what would you say to that? A lot of people do that. And again, it's it's really dependent on how comfortable you are running the airplane on the ground like that. But again, you're talking about with the classic unit. This is a simple it's a that unit's got two buttons on it, on off yeah. and an averaging button. So when you press that averaging button, again, it's going to take about eight seconds. The screen's going to freeze. It's going to give you your prop RPM, your Ipsen phase. And it's very easy while you're already configured at that power setting to hit the average button again and take another reading. And uh, I think two times would be good. Um, three times, certainly. You can certainly average it. And if you feel like there's some mitigating factors that may be causing you to get an unstable reading, um, but yeah, I would say doing multiple readings would be a good idea. I think that's easy that way. You can kind of throw out something if you feel like you may have gotten a little bit of a gust or something and one was really outlandish uh, to pretty much disregard. Uh, the next thing that I, I kind of want to take into consideration that you haven't really mentioned this much, but I think we discussed it quite a few times. Uh, when we're speaking with a classic, as I used, um, most of your manual basically talks about installation of the accelerometer, and it shows and talks specifically about whether the lead from the accelerometer is pointing towards the crankshaft or away from the crankshaft. Um, I'll go ahead and let you explain that a little bit, but I basically used mine so it was towards the crankshaft, and, and you can tell our listeners why I did that. Okay, so um, the sensor measures the vibration in, in one direction. Um, it's not it's not a dual plane sensor. And if you have, for those of you who've never seen it, the, the accelerometer is a black sensor. It's about two inches long. It's a little cylinder, and it's got obviously a cable that comes out of it that goes to the balancing unit itself. And that cable is actually it's potted into the unit, so they're an integral part. They're both the same piece. Um, there's on the casing of the accelerometer, there will also be the Dynavibe logos on there, but it will also have an arrow on it that's pointing from the base of the sensor away from away from the base of the sensor toward the cable. So how most people, the vast majority of people mount the accelerometer is where the base of the accelerometer pointed toward the crank and the cable end pointed away from the crank. Again, what I always tell people when I'm talking to them on the phone or when I'm with them is if you're standing in front of the airplane, looking at the accelerometer mounted on, on, a, on the casing, you, the cabling should be pointed away from the crank. It should be pointed at the 12 o'clock position. When it's mounted this way and you get your IPS reading and your phase reading, what it's telling you is going back to what I said a second ago, it's indicating where the prop is heavy. If you were to turn that accelerometer around to where now the cable end is pointed toward the crank, that would be an indication of where you need to add weight. And I'm hoping that's why you mounted yours that way. Is that correct? I, I did. You know, when I first started looking at this, and even though I mounted it that way, uh, I initially still got my, my vector off. <laughs> um, so basically, Steve and guys, what he's saying is typically if you mount it the traditional way with a cable pointed away from the crank, you have to go 180 degrees from where the vector spot is located in order to change your weight. 
So that's one more step of mathematics. And as you're doing this as, as an amateur, that's just one more, more step that you can make an error. Um, and I still did that initially for my first run until I figured out, oh, stupid me, and that's what I did. So by having my leads pointed towards the crankcase, it took out that, that 180 degree point, and I just know I knew exactly where I needed to go to add my weight rather than where I needed to go to remove weight. Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, that's correct. And obviously, it's something that uh, if you were to confuse that, you would not have very much luck balancing the problem. No. When you do your next run, it gets tremendously worse, I can tell you. <laughs> right. And and again, what I, I always tell people is if if you're doing everything correctly, there's a very, very, very good chance that the, amount, the first weight placement you make is going to improve your whole situation. If it doesn't and it gets a little bit worse or worst case scenario, radically worse, first thing you need to do is check the procedure you're using. Did you do everything correct? So. You can certainly use it that way. The only consideration I have with that whole scenario is it it may be more difficult to mount to physically mount the accelerometer uh, that way than it would be with the bracketry we have that would allow you to mount it um, with the cable pointing away. And when it, when it kind of we're kind of segueing into sensor mounting and stuff like that, the the way I discussing the sensor mount being at the 12 o'clock position and up on the casing, that's ideal. I mean, if you can mount it that way, that's the best way you can have it. You can't always mount it that way. I mean, there, there may be a situation where there's no way I can physically get the sensor there. You, you can actually offset the sensor from the center line of the crank to where the base of it's not actually pointed at the crank, but it's offset to the side a couple inches or possibly even more than that. And this will still work for you. However, what you have to take in consideration is the accelerometer is still your zero degree point when you begin to count to your vector angle. But even though it's offset to the side a little bit, if the sensor is still oriented where it's pointed straight up and down, then it's still reading to where zero degrees is still going to be up at the 12 o'clock position. And I hope that didn't confuse people. No, that's good. Um, so typically when you're talking about adding weight, um, you know, sometimes people will start trying to add things uh, to, for example, perhaps underneath the uh, the screws of the uh, uh, spinner, prop spinner, for example, rather than initially drilling holes in, into various parts of the structure. Um, so, you know, if you're able to do that and you can get a reasonable amount of weight in there to start making some difference by using the screws, uh, it's important for people to remember when they go back and actually permanently mount this, just like any weight and balance calculation, if you move that weight to a different arm in reference to the center of the crankshaft, uh, you need to make some calculations to get an equivalent mass. Is that right? That's correct. And a lot of people, not a lot of people, some people forget that. So kind of backing up a little bit to um, discuss what you said as far as adding counterweight. So, and, and again, every make a model of airplane is going to be a little bit different, but Let's just take something everybody can relate to, I think, like a Cessna 172. Where you would typically want to add weight is by using the spinner screws. And let me back up even further and say, when you are balancing the prop, you want to do this with the spinner installed on the aircraft. I've seen a few people balance the prop without the spinner installed. So you could balance it without the spinner install, installed, balance the prop, install the spinner, and have the props out of balance again. So you want to balance it with the spinner installed. And you can add your counterweight to the spinner screws themselves. But this is a test weight location. The weight should not be left there permanently. And you're exactly correct. 
two, two things onto this. If you're going to add your counterweight at a certain radius, let's say it's the spinner screws, you want to use that same radius every single time. You wouldn't want to use the spinner screws on one run and then the starter ring gear on another run. You want to keep using the spinner screws. And we're just using AN hardware when we do this. So just remove the corresponding spinner screw that's in the location where you need to add weight. Put your, typically it's like AN970-3 washers um, underneath uh, the spinner screws and document everything you've done and then run the airplane again. Once you've got the down to an acceptable level, you're exactly right. At that point, you'd want to move the weight inboard. And let's say you're going to move it to the spinner backing plate where you can, at that point, drill a hole. Um, you're going to have to add more weight by doing that because you're moving the weight inboard. And there's a pretty with a, simple with a shorter arm. Yes. Yeah. There's a pretty simple calculation for doing that. Um, once you get to the point where you want to take your test weight location, which is the spinner screws, and move it into the backing plate where you can add it permanently, you'd want to take the radius of where you've got your test weight on the spinner screws. And let's just make the math easy. Let's say it's at 10 inches, and that's probably a little bit far, but let's say it's 10 inches and you've got 10 grams of weight out there, you would just simply multiply 10 by 10, which would give you 100 inch grams. And then let's say we're going to move the weight inboard two inches. So that's going to put the permanent location at an eight inch radius. You would divide that eight into that 100, and that would give you the amount of permanent weight you need to add to compensate for moving inboard. Sure. And the next thing I would caution everybody on is when you're doing this and you're having to remove and replace spinners to do runs is to make sure you index exactly how the spinner was to the prop or, or the backing plate um, as you as you you know remove and reinstall this between your runs because you can't get some uh, anomalies within the spinners itself, for example. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if the spinner can go on more than one way, index it. So if you do have to take it off in order to add weight, then um, it will go on the same way. But having said that, if you are going to use the spinner screws, um, then between runs adding your test weight, there really should be no need for you to have to remove the spinner using that scenario. Yeah. Well, let's let's make another confession. And you even mentioned this once in your manual. I'm sure you'll, you'll probably confirm it again. You know, we do our initial run and we come out with a calculation. We add, up, we add some weight to it. We do our second run and says, lo and behold, that was much better. What happens if I just go back and add just a little bit to the original spot that I just added? What's been your response to that or typical experience? Well, that's this is going back to um, what uh, the term you used earlier, where you're just kind of creeping into something. Um, one thing I advise people to do, particularly when they get the classic, and I think this is really, really helpful, is at the back of the manual, we have a manual balance worksheet. And if anybody's got a classic and they don't have that page in it or that balance worksheet, they can contact us. You can just go to our website and call the number or email us, and I can get you copies of it. This is going to allow you to, to document everything you're doing to the prop and, um, you know, and just follow what you're doing. Um, and you can plot the vectors that you're getting on the graph itself. And this is very helpful for you to visualize what's happening. What I normally do is when you add weight, you should ideally see the vibration level get better. So your IPS level decreases, but your angle is going to change. Now, if you think about this in the most simplistic terms, if you think about a polar chart, 
if you've got a heavy spot on one side and you're adding counterweight on the opposite side, what would happen if you just continue to add weight on that opposite side? Your angle eventually is going to move to where now you've created a heavy spot on the opposite side. But as far as creeping into something or taking baby steps, I have found that by adding, if you can calculate how much weight you need to add, I would always undershoot that a little bit. So you're creeping into the center of the chart where you want to be at the center of the chart is zero vibration. And I have found that by adding smaller amounts of weight to the same location gets pretty good results. Well, I thought in your manual said it usually wasn't quite that simple. I mean, I, I did try that and I found it it really was not that quite simple. Uh, the, the first weight that I added made a significant difference to it. When I tried to add a little bit more to the same spot, it was not helpful. And I eventually ended up having to balance in two spots. And by the time I completed the second spot, I was I was more than satisfied. Um, and, and in essence, uh, when I did my three run averages, as I spoke about before, by the time I balanced the second spot, which is a much smaller weight than the primary spot, uh, there was one run when I actually had 0.00. Uh, I thought that was just too good to be true. I, I you know, did another couple of runs and basically settled with a final score of 0.003, I believe it was, uh, which I thought was pretty remarkable and uh, a pretty good guess or pretty good luck, I should say. Yeah, and I think your experience is pretty common. I mean, you're, you're probably going to end up having to add well, I don't want to say probably it's it can be likely that you're going to end up having, having to add weight in two different locations. But ideally, you really wouldn't want to have weight in any more than two locations. And you know, depending on the condition and everything, you shouldn't have to. But I think your experience is pretty typical. Your first weight placement was a larger amount of weight that significantly reduced the vibration. And then once the angle changed, you were able to add a smaller amount of weight to bring it in even further. So if you're Dealing with uh, a large vibration, let's say it's one inch per second, it's going to take a lot more weight to compensate for that than if you were at, you know, point one. So no, I think I was pretty think, lucky initially. I think my original one, I can't remember for sure, but I think it was like, you know, point zero two five or something. It was it was within reasonable specs of what I remember from your graph limits. But uh, when I got it down to, you know, the very, very low low figure and i think i spent a total of four runs but again you know one run i made a stupid mistake the second run i just tried to make it really really simple and add weight to the original spot and that didn't quite work out so you know for those of you thinking about how many times you gotta be running these engines playing these things you know i did four the first one or so or it was pretty much a learning experience uh, but i think if, if you're really careful and kind of listen to us and what steve is saying and read the manual very very carefully uh, you can probably easily do it in about three runs yeah and it's amazing how sensitive a prop can be and how little weight can impact it. And again, going back to what I said, if you're already dealing with a fairly low vibration amplitude or severity of vibration, then initially it's going to take less weight to balance the prop and it can get pretty sensitive. But um, that's cool that you got it to 0, 0.00 with the classic. And we have customers who, uh, we have a gentleman who, it kind of cracks me up. He'll send me text messages with just screenshots of his classic and it'll say 0, 0.00. He won't tell me what kind of airplane it was. He's just like <laughs> 0, 0.00 again. So, well, I didn't, I didn't log that one. I thought that was just too optimistic. So I settled for <laughs> the, the moderate 0.003. And I, I was pretty happy with that. One thing uh, while, you're, while you're talking about, if I could real quick, you know, the severity of the vibration or the amplitude and it's again, it's reading an IPS. Um, the lower the value, the better. So if you can get to 0, 0.00, then that's as good as you can get. That's really good. 
Um, but when we're balancing a prop, we typically want to get to 0 0.07 inches per second or below. And a lot of people, if they got to 0 0.07, would go, that's good. I'm not going to go any further. Um, it's going to get a little more sensitive below that. Um, so they elect to stop at 0 0.07, which is acceptable. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you ever take an initial reading, that's 1.2, not 0.12, but 1.2 inches per second, then you should not attempt to balance a prop that's got a vibration that's that high or higher. Okay. Um, you know, just talk about, you know, personal perspective, you know, you, you always hope that when you do something to your aircraft, you're going to notice a, a perceptible difference. Um, I have to say that after I did balance prop, uh, balance prop, uh, the aircraft, I thought it was noticeably smoother. Um, Jeff, I don't know. You, you got a chance to fly my aircraft this, this past weekend. Uh, what was your general impression? Yeah, it was very smooth. Um, I don't have really anything to compare it against, but I think um, a lot of our engines have reputations of being pretty smooth. UL Power, um, they have a pretty good reputation of being a smooth running engine. Jabru does too. But um, I have to say, Gary, your engine was very, very smooth. So hard for me to say how much was attributed to a perfect balance and how much was just, um, you know, achievable by anybody with, with the UL engine and, and that Sensenic prop. But yeah, it felt great. Yeah, I mean, I thought the engine was fairly smooth before I balanced it. When I did the initial test runs, it, it was well within tolerance, according to uh, uh, Dynavide. But uh, I got a remarkable improvement even after prop balancing. So it's something I do suggest people, well, you know, seriously consider for longevity, comfort, and hopefully save them money in the long run. Now, Gary, let me talk about balancing my Jabru. And um, you had a little bit more options with your spinner and your backplate. And, um, you know, that's that's good. It gives you lots of flexibility. On a Sonics, though, you have that machine spinner crush plate. And there are six bolts that, that bolt through the crush plate, through the prop, and then into the lugs and, and nuts on the backside on the prop flange. And so that's it. You got six potential mounting points to add weight. And so you, you really have to – you have two techniques that you possibly can use to dynamically balance on, say, a Jabru or an Aero-V for that matter. One, you can change out your prop bolts, make them longer or shorter with more mass or less mass. And so you might um, you might be able to change out one prop bolt and then maybe uh, throw on a washer or two on, on a second prop bolt to do that, that two-stage balance. And that might get you to where you, you need to be. Or the other approach is you got to add some sort of weight-carrying apparatus on the backside of the prop flange where you can mount that weight. Steve, um, I know I know we've had a couple of Sonics do this exact thing recently. Can you just describe, maybe put a Sonic spin on it, how might you attach weight to the backside of the crank or the, uh, the prop flange when you don't have that back plate to conveniently hang weight off of? Well, again, you're going back to the prop bolts would be one thing you could do, but you might have to... You might have to fasten your own sort of mount in order to add weight to the mount. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm thinking like a little uh, half moon crescent shaped deal on the backside, and it forms like a little skeleton that's bolted up to the prop bolt. And then now you have like a rail that you can add additional weight to. Exactly. And you know, if you if you're limited as to amount of locations you can add weight, that is something that is. It's not going to help the situation, but it doesn't make it undoable. It's certainly doable. But if you're in a situation where you can have a some sort of balance wheel where you can essentially add weight wherever you need to, it's going to make it's going to give you a lot more flexibility and it's going to make things a lot easier for you. But um, we not kind of going back to the GX3 for a second with the software, 
you know, it'll calculate solutions with as little as three locations to add weight and do a good job. So it is doable, but if you have to fashion something to where, um, you know, just for the provisions of adding weight, you would want to do it to where the more locations, the better. Yeah, and this is kind of what I found doing my prop balance. I, I really kind of struggle with this uh, quite a few runs and experimenting with different things. I started at about a 0.5, which is, you know, not terribly smooth. And um, maybe my prop was just, um, you know, less well-balanced than, than the next prop is. But I started with about a 0.5, and I started changing out prop bolts. And I got longer prop bolts, uh, thinking, you know, longer prop bolt, I can throw on a few extra washers and a nut, and I've got more mass at that location. And after I, I changed out three of the prop bolts kind of on the lightweight side to add more mass, I still couldn't really get it any closer. Uh, I, I had no more ability to add more mass. I didn't want to go to two sizes longer prop bolts because mm-hmm. now that's a lot of bolt hanging out the backside of the, the flange. And I kind of just had to call it good. Um, I just didn't have anywhere convenient to hang more mass without going to this little skeleton frame thing that I could have fabricated and bolted up. That was my challenge. Ultimately, I only got down to about a 02 uh, so uh, an improvement, definitely improvement from 0.5 to 0.2, but I didn't get down to those super smooth locations. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in some applications, that's there. There is a limitation, but um, it, it makes things a little more challenging to do it. But it's still doable. Um, but again, ideally, you'd want to get to 0.07 and below. But if you went from 0.5 to 0.2, you, you made a significant improvement. Yeah, and I could feel that. I I, I kind of found myself wondering early on is this going to be super dramatic or am I just going to sort of maybe think I feel an improvement in smoothness, but it's not really there? Well, after I did it, and I can answer that question, going from a 0.5 to a 0.2, there was a noticeable reduction in the amount of vibration I felt in flight. And so I, you know, I, I can now answer that question. Yes, it is noticeable to make these improvements. Yeah. One thing I tell people and I, particularly people that uh, are interested in our equipment who want to do service work with them is this is one thing that to reiterate what you just said that you will notice right away. So you could balance someone's prop form and take out the balance sheet and go, well, we started out at 0.6 and now we're at 0.04 and I added this much weight here, but you know, the proof's kind of in the pudding and you can basically say, get in the airplane. If, if they weren't the one running the airplane, when you balanced and started up. And in most cases I found if it's the owner of the airplane, they're like, oh, yeah, that made a significant difference. And they're actually kind of really surprised by it. You know, kind of a funny uh, a sideline there. You know, we've always kind of chided ourselves when we go out and wash and wax our planes, how much faster it flies. And we, we know that's pretty wishful thinking. But I really do believe that with a dynamic prop balance, you can actually feel uh, a noticeable effect to it. So it's not so much of a fantasy. Yeah, it's, it's it's much more efficient and, you know, it's in, your, your cockpit experience is going to be better because it's also going to be a lot quieter. Things aren't going to be rattling around. You may, in some cases, you know, the whiskey compass, it's not shaking around. Your avionics are going to be more stable. And I, I've been in a few airplanes where the owners really just thought this everything's fine, everything's normal and took a reading of the prop and it was significantly out of balance. But going back to what you said a minute ago, they really had nothing to compare it to, you know? So when I was looking at kind of our notes a minute ago, and one of the questions was, well, do I need my prop balanced? Well, you don't really know until you go out and check it. And that's easy to do. Right. Right. John, when you did your Jabiru, what did you start with? Where do you add weight or take away weight? And then what do you end up with? 
Well, my first run was about uh, 0. 0.3 uh, inches per second, and I got it down to 0.08, and it took about four runs to get to there. And how did you add or subtract weight? I actually took a weight off because the Sonics is, is really a challenge on uh, your ability to add or remove weight, <clears throat> you know, because of that small spinner. So what I did was I pulled, um, I didn't change out the, the prop bolts, but I had different uh, or, or thinner prop nuts uh, and what it was and six prop nuts. And so I swapped those out and put thinner washers on the backside. And that was what it took uh, to get it down to the 0.08. And I was satisfied at 0.08. I said, I can't, I'm not going to get any better than this and called it good. Okay. So same prop bolts, just uh, lighter nuts. And that made all the difference. Yeah. Was that on one or two locations? Two locations because the angle for the inches, the uh, ips was right between two prop bolts. So I just took it out of both. Okay. And then the next step was to go to shorter prop bolts or go to the other side and, and add more washers and uh, a longer prop bolt. So I decided to take weight off versus adding. Mm -hmm. Which is preferable to do if you can. Okay. Yeah, that's a good technique. Uh, thinner nuts, yeah. One thing and I don't know how much how much the weight difference is, but it can't be more than just a few grams. So, you know, the total the total change in weight was only a handful of oh, grams no, and it made it made a difference. Yeah, I wasn't worried about weight balance or anything. I was worried more about just uh, trying to get it to balance out with the, with the least amount of modifications to my prop. Now, with the Sonics, right. though, you know, you could get as sophisticated as because we have the solid billet spinner, you could drill out in you know on the backside of the the billet to remove weight. I don't know if I'd go that to that level, but you could do it to uh, help balance this thing out. Yeah, I suppose if you had something that was really challenging, that would be an option. Now, one of the things that you also got to remember is, you know, with us Sonics guys, you need to mark it so that you know that the the prop has to go in the same direction when you if you take it off, and the spinner has to go exactly on the same direction, and the bolts that you were using have to go in the same spot, or or you're going to have to rebalance if you ever do any maintenance. Yeah, and that's a good point because um, you may not be thinking about that if you don't keep good records. Uh, by the time you pull it all off, it'll be too late. Yeah, well, then you're, you're going to be rebalancing. Steve, how much difference would you see perhaps after you balance a little on in the normal course of erosion, nicks, things of that nature? And, and in particular, in the case of Sonics, because most of the props there are used are wood uh, when dealing with moisture absorption issues. Um, well, with a wood prop, I would say you typically want to try to check it more often. And just because of, if nothing else, just the environment it's in and the moisture content and stuff like that. Um, so it would definitely be something you'd want to check more often. But going back to what you, you said earlier, um, I just want to fall back on this, is going back to the process of balancing. You're talking about documenting everything you're doing. If you're going to remove the prop, there's weight on it. You want to make sure you know how everything came off. It goes back on the same way. If when you're going out to balance a prop, if it already has counterweight on it from a previous balance job, you certainly want to document where all that weight is just in case, worst case scenario, your attempts to balance this time for whatever reason failed. Let's say you have an equipment problem or something like that. At least you know how everything goes back on. And documentation is huge to me. Um, even for home builders, you want to mark down everything you've done. And certainly if you're, um, you know, when I talk to people and they're having issues or get questions, um, 
the more information I have, the better it is for me to try to help somebody. So documentation and marking everything and indexing things is very important. Steve, I have just uh, one other thing. Um, the manual talks about ensuring that your vibration sensor mounts are mounted as far forward as possible and that the mount is rigid so it's not resonating. Can you just elaborate a little on that? How far forward is, is optimal? What's the effect if you, you, know, you put it at the midpoint of the engine? And how do you know if the mount is strong enough or if it's too flexible? Well, you ideally want to mount the sensor as close to the prop as you can safely get it where it's not going to hit anything. Mounting it too far back is going to be too far away from the prop to have any noticeable effect. And something I just thought about today that I run into now and then is I don't think it's so much of an issue with the Sonics guys, but people have prop extensions. And when they add weight on, let's say, the ring gear, um, sometimes it's too far away from the prop to have an effect. Um, so you want to get as close to the prop as you can possibly get it. And the sensor too far back is is not going to give you a good reading. And again, it's it's a situation where you want to get as close as you possibly can safely, even if you have to mount center a little bit. As far as the mounting brackets go, how will you know if your bracket's not good? Well, you're probably not going to have desirable results when balancing. Your ips are going to be erratic they're not going to be stable and in some cases um, you can get in resonance where the angle is going to be completely off anyways um, but we we sell mounting hardware it, it does not come with the classic kit but we have a hardware kit that's available and um, we, we're happy to sell you mounts our mounts but you want the mount to be as rigid and stiff as possible and that's going to give you your best results Okay, well, so just to kind of put it in, in general terms, if you made a mount out of a, a piece of uh, aluminum L-angle extrusion um, that was eighth-inch thick, you know, would that be okay? Or does it need to be like a steel plate, or can it be just a, a bent piece of 32 thousandths aluminum? Is that, you know, what, what is kind of generally okay and what is probably not okay? I would use steel if you could. So, but... Yeah, you know, aluminum would, would work too as long as it's rigid. But if you're getting a situation where you're taking readings to where you're having an oscillation in the ips, that, that would be a real good indication that you're having an issue. Then certainly if you made your own mount, that's what I would look into. And this is where going back and taking multiple readings or three readings per run would be helpful for you to to determine if you are having a problem with the mount or not. Okay. So inconsistencies are how you're gonna spot right. it. Right. And Jeff, just okay. for reference, I used eighth-inch uh, aluminum angle on my mount. Okay. And John, you were going to add something. Well, I was going to say um, the the mounts that uh, Dynavibe uh, offers as part of their kit are for the the Continental and the um, the Lycomings. They don't have a mount for the Jabaroos or the Aero Vs or the ULs. So we're kind of tied to building our own mounts. For this and what we have right now is we have a mount now for the ul and the jabiru 3300 um i hope to have one built for the aero v soon with carl's plane we can probably put some pictures in the show notes of just the mounts that we create and we seem to get pretty good results out of them yeah and um you know as we uh hand this uh our, our the dynavive out that i have um, um, you know, we're collecting these mounts for the various uh, home-built engines that we're seeing. So we're trying to simplify the process. So if you get if if you get the kit from John, then hopefully the mount will be already prefabricated for you. 
And if it isn't, um, we'll help you build one, and then but you have to add it to the kit. Okay, Steve, as we kind of start wrapping this up, can you just maybe run down again the hot things that people typically overlook or screw up that give them problems? We kind of end this on a positive note. You know, avoid these common mistakes, and you're going to be okay. Yeah. Well, the, the biggest mistake probably is that, again, people have a hard time wrapping their head around counting to the degree and using the classic counting the degree angle in the direction the prop rotates. Um, again, we're used to sitting in the airplane looking out at the prop where we kind of do everything standing in front of the airplane, looking back at the prop. But to try to remove any ambiguity from it, I believe the manual says, and the, certainly the balance worksheet does. And again, I strongly suggest that if you're going to, to balance the prop with the classic, you use the balance worksheet. It says direction the prop rotates. Okay. So I see a lot of people that count in the wrong direction. Um, I see other issues where people have an unsteady tack. That's where the photo tack's making contact with the reflective tape. And that's certainly going to impact your entire reading. Um, and, and I know we're focusing mainly on the classic here, but when people jump from the classic to using the GX version, there are some fundamental things that are entirely different with it that people have to be to, to look out for. One is when you're adding weight to the prop using the classic, the weight is cumulative. So when you add your first amount of weight and you run the airplane again and you add your second amount of weight, you're adding that weight to the weight you've already added, whereas the GX3 is the way the software does the calculation, you remove all the previous weight. Um, so the, the direction of rotation. And it's probably one of the bigger snafus I see people making. And the other thing, one is people tend to use the photo tack as a reference point or zero degree point. And again, if it's co-located with the accelerometer, you probably won't have an issue. But the, the accelerometer is your zero degree point, And that's where you want to begin counting from. But the balance worksheet, I think, is extremely helpful. And it's actually got some bullet points on the top of it, which will basically step-by-step step walk you through the process. Well, I can and if all else fails, you can always call us and we're always happy to help. I agree with you, Steve. It's easy to focus on the, on the photo tag because that's the first thing you do is you go back and set the prop against the photo tag. And then you think, well, I need to count from there, but that's not correct. You do have to count from the transducer, not the photo tack. But it, it was something that happened to me once, and so it's easy to get sidetracked by that. Yeah, but those are those are the, the things that for first-time users I see happening more than anything else. But to be honest with you, I think it's set up. It's, it's a pretty simple system to use, and the vast majority of people who use it for the first time have really good results, and they don't really have any issues with it. Mine worked out well, so I was happy with it. Well, good. Yeah, Gary, um, I think that anybody who's gone through this process and done it, or, or even just paid to have it done, I don't think anybody generally um, feels like it was a waste of time and, and, and effort and money. I think everybody's happy with it, and um, especially as we get more and more people that have experience with it, uh, it gets easier and easier to find someone who can help you go through this process. Yeah, it seems like a little bit of voodoo, but it's a really pretty simple uh, process to follow. I really think if anybody is building an airplane, they can certainly balance their prop as well. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. This is not something that just a, an A and P mechanic can do. 
it's a very simple process. And the fact that you use the term voodoo is kind of funny because people do think it's kind of black magic, but it's pretty straightforward. And if it, you're in a situation where, you know, you're not in a situation where you have the equipment to do it yourself in this day and age, there's more and more people out there with balancing units. So it should be much easier now than it was 20 years ago to find someone who would either do it for you or, you know, let you borrow their equipment. True. We certainly want Steve to make lots of money. We want everybody to start buying those Dynavibes. Uh, but you're <laughs> right. You can probably find some fellow builders somewhere in the neighborhood that might have one uh, or perhaps do as John does and just kind of start your own uh, syndicate with one. Steve, there's something that I saw recently in the news the EA has a, a chapter tool program that they're really kind of pushing. They want chapters to start buying some of these more complex tools that can benefit the entire chapter and things like aircraft scales and, you know, high taller stuff. And one of the things they just did is there is a, there is an incentive offer for chapters to go buy their own Dynavibe prop balancer and keep it in the chapter tool program. That's correct. So if you belong to a chapter and they do not have one, Maybe you bring that up as a item of consideration that you do that. Uh, buy it as a chapter and pass it around. Make sure you have a good body of experienced people who can do it, and everybody can take advantage of it. I think that's a great use of a chapter. Oh, I think it is too. And we've had a lot of chapters do it, and it's worked out real well for them. And again, you're going to have that tool available, the, the balancer available to everybody in the chapter. And it's it's one of those things where um, you were talking about is this worth doing? I, I found that even I wouldn't say they're naysayers, but someone who's on the fence going, well, do I really need to do this? Once they've had it done, they're believers. So it typically is a tool that, and I tell those people who are going to potentially want to do service work with them, that even if you have someone that's on the fence, once you do it, and just as you guys have, have said, you could definitely feel the difference, and most people do, then you've kind of sold the process to them and they become believers and it's kind of a word of mouth thing. They tell other people. And more often than not, you have quite a few people who want to have their prop balanced. Well, you know, Steve, I use the analogy of you're going to go spend six, $800 on tires for your car and you would never spin balance them uh, because it's too expensive. Uh, that, that just doesn't make any sense. And you're putting a, a uh, $2,000 prop on the front of your, your $40,000 aircraft and you, you're resisting on spin balancing that exactly i mean it's something that is surprisingly neglected uh, in many cases but uh again it's something that you can come out to someone and say hey we just balanced your prop and these are all the values that may be like voodoo to them but get in the airplane and start it up and then in many cases are like wow that made an incredible difference well worth the money mm-hmm. and if you don't have a chapter that that has one or you don't know anyone um, you know, John, you purchased one at Oshkosh last year exactly for this reason. We all wanted to get in on this. Uh, we were pretty convinced it was going to be beneficial, but we didn't have anybody that we could reach out to. So John purchased one himself, and he's been essentially renting it out for a really cheap price to all of us that want to take advantage of it. You know, my chapter doesn't have one, and so I rent John's. And so, you know, if you need something like that, send John an email, and you can get in on his device. Steve, is there any kind of a... a- repetitive interval that you guys would typically recommend to redoing this just to make sure everything's yep i mean everything's up to speed because i know as we fly our own aircraft day in and day out you can get receptive you know changes that you can't really perceive because you just kind of become used to things so is there any kind of like a service interval to redo these things 
Um, well, it would certainly be uh, in a condition situation, on condition, if you felt like something had happened to the prop that it's thrown it out of balance. But, you know, you can have situations where the prop was removed and put back on the airplane for whatever reason, you'd want to balance the prop again. <clears throat> Paint erodes, there's corrosion that can happen on the prop. Certainly, you get nicks on the prop that's going to cause this. But what I tell people is because of the ease of use of this, and it does not take that much time to do this. It's certainly something that can be checked pretty quickly. And if it's someone doing an annual, I would certainly have it checked at the annual. Well, especially since we got most of the engine mounts done. <laughs> My primary reason to buy this unit at Oshkosh was, first of all, they offered a pretty good show price. I had always wanted it done. I couldn't find anybody locally that would do it. And I pressured and, uh, Pardon me? And I pressured you into it. And and you walked me over to the booth and said, give me your credit card. You're going to buy this thing. <laughs> um, Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I wanted it to have it in my quiver. Um, and I, did, I didn't buy it to make a business out of it. But I decided if I'm going to buy this thing, I'm going to balance my prop. And I'm going to offer it to all my buddies. Um, but they have to give me a little bit of coin to help, you know, recover this cost. Uh, I have no desire to make it a business. But uh, right now, you know. Mike Needenthal's out in Las Vegas. I'm gonna I'm gonna leverage a uh, a free uh, Southwest airline ticket um, to go to Vegas and have him put me up, and I'll balance his prop, and then he'll send me back. So this is the kind of thing that you know you can you can make some really good friends with this thing. <laughs> oh yeah, I I always say that when people get a prop balancer and they're out using it for the first time and every airport's a little bit different, but then again, a lot of them are exactly the same, the same characteristics. And someone walks up to you, what are you doing? We're balancing the prop. It, immediately the gears start going in their head. Well, I wonder if my prop needs to be balanced. And again, it's easy to check. And if you haven't balanced it before, it almost certainly could be improved upon. And even if it has been balanced before, it could probably be improved upon. Well, right now, my prop balancer is in my neighbor's house because I live in an air park. And uh, he's got he's got four airplanes, and he uh, is having a problem with his Thorpe. But he's got a really cool Stearman. And so I'm trading using my prop balancer for a really fun ride in the Stearman. <laughs> that's a good deal right there. If, uh, if that's what it takes to make all kinds of friends and uh, go fly cool old airplanes, um, I'm going to get one on order, well, I too. Could, I, could, I could suggest a few euphemisms for this, but I'm sure Jeff would just edit them out anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're not well, that expensive. I mean, the, what he's talking about, the classic, is just over $1,000 uh, Oshkosh special. And uh, it's kind of nice to just have in your quiver to have, okay, I can go balance my prop. The Dynavibe Classic is actually, it's, it's $1,495, and we typically, and that's without any specials, and we typically do have specials at Oshkosh and Sun and Fun, which reduces the price even more. So it, it's the price point is such that it has made it affordable enough to where just a home builder himself will go out. We have plenty of people who have really no intentions of even, you know, initially they don't have intentions of loaning it out or doing it for other people who just get it for themselves. and um, if you think about if you're going to do this as a service and you're charging two fifty to three hundred dollars a pop to balance a prop, it really doesn't take that long, and or many prop balances to pay for the unit and start making a little bit of money at it. And I truly, my experience is it's truly one of those things that it's a word of mouth gets around. 
once you've done it for one person and they're very they're satisfied with the results, they're going to tell other people and their people are going to want to have their prop checked. And again, more often than not, the condition of the prop balance wise can be improved upon. Well, good. I think uh, that's a great place to, to wrap this discussion up. Steve, I want to thank you for um, just running us through the process and helping us better understand the methodology and kind of the technology that's behind it. So thanks for oh, that. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Well, um, just as, as we kind of close the episode up, uh, as usual, um, you can find this episode on the website, sonicsflight.com. We'll have the show notes with some of the links to the DynaVibe products and um, some of these pictures that we what we mentioned. Those show notes are going to be at sonicsflight.com slash 66. And we have a couple of uh, neat shows that are going to be coming up here pretty soon. The, our next show, actually in just a couple of weeks, we're going to get a, a new update from Sonics Aircraft. They're going to tell us all the things that they're working on in 2020. And uh, we'll see if we can drag any uh, any hot, juicy gossip out of them. Of course, we never can, but doesn't stop us from trying anyway. But we'll hear kind of what's on their plate and what they're what they're up to. And then we're going to talk to our buddy Tim Reed out in uh, Jersey, and he's going to talk about how his B model is coming. He's made great progress over the last year or so since when he started this. So we'll get an update from him. And then we're going to talk to Tim Allen with his very cool extended wingtips. They're really, um, like Don Bowen said, they're really wing extensions, and it adds some additional wing area and changes the aspect ratio. And he's already collecting some really, really promising performance data. So we'll hear from Tim and all about how he built them and kind of what you get in the kit. And he's selling these things and he's actually shipped a couple of them now. So that'll be really cool. So a lot of fun topics to get to here in the next uh, couple of months or so. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or that favorite podcast app that you use on your smartphone. If you want to send us an email for feedback or a suggestion or a request, you can find the link to the email on the website or send it directly to feedback at sonicsflight.com. So with that, Steve, thanks again. Gary, John, get out there and brave the cold weather and and go do some flying. Plan to. Well, Steve, we'll see you at Oshkosh, and we'll be giving you some crap there. Please do. We look forward to seeing you guys. And again, thank you very much for the opportunity. Sorry, buddy. Thanks a lot. Okay. You guys have a good night. Bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. Steve, thanks again. Um, I know it's always a bit of a struggle to to get to this point, but it's always worth it. So people love love hearing from suppliers and interesting people that are doing cool one off stuff, and so I think they're going to really enjoy this, and and hopefully it'll kind of get this on their mental radar. Oh no, it's I, I really appreciate this opportunity. We we really do, and uh, I hope that came off okay. I mean, I have no experience with this. So okay. No, it was really good. I think we had a good episode. And I appreciate it too. I spoke with you. I'm one of the many hordes that you had to deal with at Oshkosh. I went to one of your presentations and your booths and pestered you a little bit with John. And, and as he said, probably got him to whip out his credit card for us. So we really appreciate you taking the time for us. Oh, no, yeah, Gary's that. the reason that you're on this call because he made me do it. <laughs> <laughs>